Hello, and welcome to Love and Friendship. Today is going to be a kind of big game-changer for our class for a couple of reasons. Um, for one thing, just as Augustine was our sort of transitionary figure between ancient and medieval philosophy and sort of has one foot in both kind of schools and, and time periods, um, Dante, for us, very much is the transitional figure between the medieval period and the modern period. Um, he's just got a lot of... In Dante's, or, uh, in Dante's Divine Comedy, you will find characteristics that are very typical of medieval poetry, namely the organization, the um, elaborate use of metaphor and symbol, um, the very heavy religious themes and the sort of allegoricalization of, of religious imagery and ideas. Um, but you will also find a whole lot of modern ideas. And his view on love is very much sort of pushing pushing towards the modern era, although still very much having a lot in common with many of the medieval ideas that we've talked about here. Um, so this is yet another transition day for us. Um, we're going to be looking at a new sort of era um, in the discussion of the philosophy of love um, and in the discussion of philosophy generally. Um, so it's a big transition moment in that respect. But it's also, as you'll notice, literature! and not so much philosophy. Uh, you'll notice that in the class so far, I have typically tried to pair our philosophical works with relevant literary and or cultural sort of artifacts and sources of, of the time. Um, so when we were reading Plato's Symposium, I also had you read Sappho and take a look at Hesiod's Theogony. And when we were reading Aristotle, we were also taking a look at, you know, Homer's Iliad. Um, we had our little discussion of Cleopatra um, during the Roman Empire, and we very much talked about King Arthur and the whole, you know, Arthur, Guinevere, Lancelot love triangle when we were talking about courtly love. Um, I find that, like, you really can't talk about love and friendship as philosophical concepts without also kind of bringing in these big deal um, literary ideas. Oftentimes it's the writers of literature that are kind of pioneering the discussion of how love is sort of framed in their era, um, and philosophy is geared more towards describing it in that respect. Um, plus, you know, to talk about love, it is typically way easier to talk about concrete examples, like actual relationships, than it is to sort of abstract our way to a solution. Um, but up until now, I've largely paired the philosophical readings with sort some sort of glimpse into what's going on in the literary scene at that moment in history or, or that time period, some kind of example of, of what the philosophy there is talking about. Um, this is the first time that we're just reading literature and I'm not even apologizing about it. Um, and this is partially because Dante is just that freaking important and really does represent a huge sea change in the way that love and relationships are perceived between the medieval period and the modern humanistic period. Also because philosophy during the modern period wasn't interested in love in this way nearly as much as Dante is. Like, you will have a couple of treatises here and there on love, but philosophy is very much going in a different direction at this point. Um, so it's sort of not observing what's changing here. And as a consequence, in order for us to sort of 
draw the through line between the medieval view of love insofar as we've got the courtly love tradition and sort of like the Christian tradition in the way of, you know, Aquinas, Augustine, and the rest, um, you really can't see exactly where the heck Romanticism shows up in a few hundred years without a little bit more explanation and a little bit more examination uh, of what the, the modern world is doing. Um, the fact of the matter is the modern attitude and philosophy is defined largely by two things, um, namely the rise of science, which we'll talk about, and also epistemology. Um, the modern period is growing less and less interested with metaphysics as it's typically understood, these sort of big ideas of how the world works. Um, the way that, like, Plato is talking about beauty as this, you know, eternal, constant concept that exists somewhere in the ether somewhere, um, and that we all connect to by means of any beautiful thing. Um, as a, uh, instead, rather than talking about these big metaphysical concepts, rather than talking about reality, so to speak, um, the moderns are predominantly preoccupied with the mind, um, epistemology, as I said. Um, they're not looking at what is reality, how does it work, what are the rules that define it. That is increasingly becoming the purview of natural philosophy or science. Um, so, you know, guys like Bacon, guys like... Uh, guys like, um, good grief, I somehow forgot his name, Isaac Newton, um, they're very concerned with how the world works, but because this is, you know, science of the observed, we haven't gotten to such scientific ideas as psychology or, you know, sociology or any of the things that would normally talk about love in that sense. Um, the fact of the matter is there isn't a whole heck of a lot of discussion happening about the actual business of love from a concrete and or scientific standpoint. Philosophy is much more concerned with understanding how knowledge works and how the mind works, um, and that doesn't seem to extend to the way that people love, at least not so much as it is extending to the way people see, or the way people hear, or the way people understand things, or the way people think about things. Um, and science hasn't gotten to the point that it feels comfortable with its method to sort of examine human behavior and treat that as the subject of science at this point. Like, again, there are exceptional cases for sure, but the big standout works of philosophy here tend to kind of ignore love in some respects. There are exceptions, so we're definitely going to look at Spinoza's ethics, we're definitely going to look at Rousseau as we get closer to the Enlightenment and, by extension, Romanticism. Um, both of them are kind of outsiders in that respect. Most of the discussion about love during this period in time is going on in literature. Um, literature is achieving whole new heights at this point in time, um, and, and for a variety of reasons. Um, but we'll talk about that in its proper place. Um, what I want to stress here is that we are reading Dante because he is a huge deal and because his view of love is super important and is very much going to become part of the cultural lexicon in its own right. Um, and this is something that I really could not find a philosophical work, like a straight-up philosophical work, to illustrate. Um, this was the best I could do. But also, I think this is actually a fairly good policy for the rest of our class going forward. So, on a more structural note, um, like obviously we we have spent the you know practically half the class talking about ancient philosophy between the Greeks and the Romans. We spent the last two weeks 
roughly, hanging around in medieval philosophy and covering basically a thousand years worth of philosophy in just a short matter of time. Um, history accelerates at this point, accelerates fairly rapidly. Um, due to the invention of the printing press in the 15th century, the modern period is going to be producing just tons more work. Um, at a much more rapid pace than the medieval world, or at the very least, tons more work that will survive to the modern age to be studied and examined. Uh, like, yes, there were tons of letter, there was tons of letter writing going on in the medieval world, much of which has probably been lost or, you know, we just don't have access to anymore. The moderns, however, could absolutely, you know, take a treatise and make hundreds of copies of it in a matter of, you know, a week or two. That's a huge deal. Um, that's enormous and totally changes the way that like people disseminate knowledge, the way that people can exchange information, and as a consequence, it changes the face of history. Things move faster as a consequence. Um, in the same way that you know one person can bring up an idea on the internet today, and in 24 hours it has gone viral. Um, in the modern world, somebody could write this brand new book of, you know, scientific insights or, or, you know, artistic discussion or analysis of the way that, that the mind works. And within, let's say, 10 years, virtually everybody in Europe has read it and the Catholic Church has already banned it. Um, this happens fairly frequently. Um, and as a consequence, there's more for us to discuss like, there are, we're going to be transitioning from, like, one or two large readings over the course of a single class, or maybe even a single week in some cases, to focusing on three or four smaller readings virtually every session of this class. Um, like, even the readings that do seem kind of large, like when we read Rousseau, for example, we're going to be reading, like, three of his different works, or excerpts from three of his different works, because that's just the way that the Philosophy of Erotic Love book sort of framed it. Uh, but I think that this is actually a smart move at this point. Because just as, you know, there are more works being released, so there are more diverse perspectives on love being produced all of the time, and friendship for that matter. Um, we are going from, you know, the medieval world with like one or two big developments in the way that they understood love, you know, again, the courtly tradition being one of those major developments, to within two to three hundred years, just like a good half a dozen new ideas about love or friendship becoming current. Um, so the, for the rest of the class, we're going to be breaking it up in this fashion. We're going to start with a work of literature, like we have here, um, with Dante's Divine Comedy, and we're going to use that as our sort of cultural touchstone. This is what the world is saying. This is what the poets are saying. This is what literature is saying about love, friendship, whatever. And then we're going to use that as sort of our touchstone as we start talking about the philosophical ideas that surround it, reject it, engage with it in various ways. Um, so for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about modernism. We're going to be talking about, you know, Montaigne's on friendship and Bacon's essay of virtually the same title. We're going to talk about Spinoza. We're going to go into the Enlightenment, talk about Rousseau and his attitude towards, you know, the education of women and how love works there, and as well as Mary Wollstonecraft giving him shit for it. Um, and then we're going to talk about the 19th century, which... We're going to spend like two whole weeks just talking about the 19th century because there's so much going on there because 
you know, the discussion is ramped up so much at that point. And it'll be the same model. We're going to start with a work of literature that I think is extremely important and representative of the time, and also underrepresented in philosophical works. Um, and then we're going to talk about the philosophy engaging with it. Um, and then we're going to do it again for the 20th century. Like, this is the pattern that we're going to adopt from here on out towards for the rest of the class. In some sense, this is like the halfway point, although technically, time-wise, the halfway point was like last week, maybe even two weeks ago, because we were very front-loaded on the ancient philosophy, which is fair in this circumstance. I think there are... I think all of the, the writings on love in the philosophical world are very indebted to the ancient world, even more so than usual. Like, it has always been said that, you know, all philosophy is just a series of footnotes to Plato. It is nowhere more obvious than when you read Plato's Symposium and realize that Plato already had, like, six really good ideas of love that many philosophers are just going to be sort of annotating and, and sort of editing over the course of the rest of history. Um, so with that in mind, today we are talking about literature, we are talking about the culture, we are talking about less philosophy proper and more the philosophy underlying how these literary works, you know, operate. Um, so I had you watch the little video on Tristan and Isolde, um, which is one of those stories that just, like, hangs around in the medieval world, very much gets picked up by the modern world, and very much gets updated by, you know, the, just, like, culture and the history to come. There are a few of these. We haven't actually spent a whole heck of a lot of time with a lot of them, although, you know, Arthur and Guinevere is certainly one of them. Um, one of the others that I would point to is Abelard and Heloise. We keep discussing it, even though we didn't get a chance to read it. Um, the star-crossed lovers who, you know, Abelard was a monk and Heloise was definitely this girl that he was teaching, and they had this illicit romance, and Abelard was castrated, and it was this whole thing. Uh, but they very much kept writing letters to each other, even though they were both, you know, totally separated from another. Their love endured. Um, as much as this idea is very inform or informing to the courtly love tradition, and I have to suspect that there's, you know, at least a little bit of that courtly love tradition surrounding the Abelard and Hel Heloise uh, myth, because it definitely became more than just a historical event. Um, I also think that we could successfully afford not talking about it because its real effects were not going to be heard until a little bit later. Um, but I also want to sort of just take a moment and the way that love is portrayed in modern literature virtually across the board. Um, in, you know, at this point I suspect that you have read a good bit of Shakespeare. It seems that those high school teachers are very insistent on you getting your daily dose of Shakespeare or yearly dose of Shakespeare, whatever the case may be. Um, this falls into our category for today. Romeo and Juliet is definitely sort of hanging out in the wings of our conversation about love and its its portrayal here. Um, and I want to talk about this trend, like something that you'll notice if you think about Tristan and old Dante and Beatrice, Romeo and Juliet. You very much get this sort of pattern that's kind of coming through. Um, this, you know, for all of our discussion of love so far, we have primarily been focusing on this kind of philosophical abstract love. 
um, again, because we've been focusing on philosophy and not so much on literature. Um, we've talked about, you know, Plato's idea that, like, love is supposed to be aspiration towards beauty or the ideal. We've talked about the Christian and Jewish notions of, like, love as being a gift from God that is then, you know, expected to be disseminated from person to person. It has this eternal significance, but it is not something that we obtain on earth. We talked about the courtly love tradition, and even there, as much as that is rooted in the poetic tradition, we did talk about it in the abstract sense, thanks to Andreas Capellanus and Ibn Sina. Um, we're presenting it as though it's, you know, this thing that people do that very much emphasizes the, the sort of pain, the suffering, the pining, the longing of love rather than the actual consummation. Um, here, we're going to start seeing love as something driven by character, for lack of a better term. Um, we're looking at the instances of love, the actual business of romance in that courtly love tradition, but sort of building on it here. Um, and you'll notice that almost all of the character, all of the romances that we find ourselves sort of especially talking about in the modern period tend to be tragic. Um, they tend to be the story of star-crossed lovers who, through fate or, you know, some kind of, like interaction with God or whoever, um, or at least with supernatural forces beyond our ken, kind of cause people to be together, and that is a really important relationship for them. Like, I know I'm not putting this terribly well, but think through, you know, the three sort of examples that we're presented with today. Like, on the one hand, we have Tristan and Isolde, who... You know, the, everything is working against them. Literally everything. Tristan is, you know, the enemy of Isolt's father, and, you know, he killed him in combat, and, like, it's only a matter of time until everyone figures out what the deal is there, And there, but there's this love potion, and the love potion means that, like, they fall madly in love, even though Tristan is supposed to, like, take her to King Mark and have her wedded, and they do, and now it's adultery. Like, it's such a huge mess. But it is it is considered one of the greatest romantic stories in the entire Western canon. Like, this is one that is told over and over and over and over and over again. Um, as much as it may not be one of the ones that you are familiar with, as much as it's one of the ones that we tend to gloss over in high schools these days, it is very much this foundational work that philosophers are going to keep making reference to, sort of keep taking as the paradigm for romantic relationships. Like, you'll see multiple philosophers going forward name-drop Tristan and Isolde. It's a big one. Um... Look to it, Romeo and Juliet. Like, Shakespeare is definitely presenting love in a particularly striking way when he presents these two young kids falling absolutely head over heels in love with each other and then everybody rushing to either, like, make that work or make that not work and ends horribly and everybody dies. Like, honestly, we could probably spend an entire semester just talking about Shakespeare's view of love if we were really, really, you know, keen on it. And I think that it would honestly be a really rich discussion because Shakespeare talks about love in so many different ways. Um, yes, he's got the star-crossed lovers thing of Romeo and Juliet, but it is often missed that in, Ro in Romeo and Juliet, like, Shakespeare's not pre presenting a very flattering picture of love. Like, everybody's like, oh, Romeo and Juliet, it's so romantic. It's really not. Like, 
it starts with violence, it ends with violence. Shakespeare is very much emphasizing that these two kids are rushing way too fast into the relationship. The helpful friar intermediary character is kind of a dick. Like, if anything, Shakespeare is emphasizing how stupid it is, how pointless, how ridiculously just meaningless the entire transaction is like the whole thing takes place over like what three four days like this is disney movie level haste in consummating the romance on steroids like it's insane that we kind of hold this up as this paradigm of romance and yet it is like at the same time as i'm sitting here thinking what are people thinking this is not a romantic story people gravitate to this story people think it's important um like, there are lots more romantic stories, like, r stories about romance that are more traditionally and more, like, positively portrayed in Shakespeare's works. You, you read, you know, As You Like It or, or Much Ado About Nothing, and, and you get these pictures that Shakespeare is, is sort of portraying of, of real transcendent love, like, relationships that are, in fact, meaningful, that are redeemed that have, you know, problems, and those problems are fixed because the characters care about each other. They take a lot of effort to sort of help each other out. You get portrayals like in Twelfth Night, where, you know, love is sort of just a fun thing that people do together. Like, it's fun to gossip about lovers, and it's fun to, you know, help lovers meet one another. Like, Shakespeare actually has a very robust notion of love across all of his plays, and that's only the good stuff. Like, then you take into account stuff like Othello and, you know, his really great romance that ultimately is tragically destroyed and everything gets gets ruined. You get things like Measure for Measure, where love is presented as kind of gross and, and sort of, like, insidious, dirty in many ways. Or, or All's Well That Ends Well, which is the most deceptive title in Shakespearean history because everything sucks at the end of the play. And everybody is, like, ruined, and it's presented as a comedy because Shakespeare's an asshole, and he's absolutely playing with the form at this point. Um, love for Shakespeare can take all of these forms. It can be tragic. It can be, you know, obsessive. It can be happy. It can be pleasant. It can be, you know, small and not important. Like... All of these things are true about love for Shakespeare, and it absolutely baffles me that despite all of these very rich and nuanced portrayals of love in various Shakespearean plays, and even in some of his, you know, more famous sonnets, somehow the editors of the Philosophy of Erotic Love saw fit to include only, like, half a dozen sonnets and not even terribly great ones at that. Like... Shakespeare's view on love is rich, robust, complicated, and varied, and somehow we got, like, seven of the most dreary sonnets as, as the only material in the, in the philosophy of erotic love. Like, it kills me a little bit inside. I, I can't even. Like, so many good soliloquies that they could pull out. So many good, you know, works of poetry. Some of the most, like, that, you know, how did they miss? Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Like, what the heck are they doing over there? But that's okay, they're philosophers, this isn't this isn't their bag. It honestly isn't mine either. I just like Shakespeare. He's kind of a big deal and he kinda of deserves it. He's awesome. But anyway, all of that aside, this is on the docket today. Like the medieval view of love was very much one of these two sort of attitudes. Either it was transcendent, God given, eternal 
and you know w- was entirely focused on God and sort of directed to God in that way, or you have this sort of courtly love tradition which runs very counter to that idea, even though it does still present love as transcendent, eternal, meaningful, you know, super important, and so on and so forth. What I want to stress with Dante especially is that Dante is uniting these two strains of the medieval tradition. And that's why he is ultimately going to be sort of the foundational thinker for the Renaissance, for humanism, for um, the sort of modern view of love. Like, over and over and over, people are going to be cribbing from Dante's view of love, whether they know it or not. It's just such a hugely important part of the lexicon at this point. So to get into that, let's actually look at the poem itself. And to start, I want to apologize, um, because this is a rough translation. Project Gutenberg's is is fairly fairly dated, um, and Dante's poetry is fairly difficult to parse out, even at the best of times. Um, I also know that just my students, as a rule, don't take to poetry. That's okay. If you couldn't make heads or tails out of this, that's fine. We'll talk about the allegorical significance, the symbolism, and so on we'll get to the big details and and all the important things that are going on here. Um, Don't be discouraged if this was not your your day for the reading or for the quiz, which it is kind of a lousy coincidence that this is the week that the quizzes started back up again, but oh well. What are you gonna do? At any rate, I want you to, I want to walk through this poem. I want to walk through these various various things that Dante is showing us, sort of the various things that Dante is emphasizing here, and I want to talk not just about, you know, what is Dante saying, what is, how is Dante, you know, bringing together these, these medieval threads of, of philosophy, the, these medieval attitudes towards love, but also I want to sort of prefigure the discussion to come. Again, since we're not going to get an opportunity to look at it in, you know, the next couple of, of classes, we need to talk about exactly what this means for the modern world, how this is going to, you know, affect the way that people understand love and view it um, in the centuries to come. Um, so let's jump right in, because there's a lot to unpack in this text. Um, I should also definitely mention that, like, the Divine Comedy is weird as a poem, and especially in the way that people teach it. Like, I teach the same first two cantos of the Inferno in my humanities class because it is super relevant, and again, I consider this poem to be incredibly important in the sort of construction of modernism. Um, But I also want to stress that I did not necessarily pick the best parts um, of the poem to, you know, show you what's going on here. Um, Canto 1 is justly famous. Canto 2 is... less famous, but still famous, but literally nobody in their right mind reads the Paradiso, and I made you read mostly Paradiso today. Um, Like, everybody loves reading the Inferno. It's lots of fun. People get, like, set on fire, and people are being tormented, and we get to laugh at sinners being sinners, and Dante gets to, like, pick fights with the asshole politicians who exiled him. Like, it's a great time, Um, as much as everybody is suffering and dying and everything is miserable. Like, to this day, Dante's view of hell is probably the single most potent, uh, like, literary depiction of hell ever presented, and it is probably still the model that most of us have in mind when we think of hell. Like, maybe not the nine circles specifically, but the sort of images of the demons and the torments, that's how we view hell. Um, Like, even Milton 
as important as Milton is to to the English literary canon, like his depiction of hell isn't nearly as familiar as Dante's. And what is familiar is the stuff that he takes from Dante. Um, so yeah, this is you know the Inferno is awesome. Everybody loves it. Everybody reads it. Nobody reads Purgatorio. Nobody reads Paradiso. And yet I insisted on giving you the last three chapters. Uh, I want to emphasize that as well. Um, the passages that I have presented here are the very beginning of the, the Divine Comedy and the very end of the Divine Comedy. Um, Dante divides up the Divine Comedy in classic medieval fashion um, into three books, and in each of these books are 33 cantos, so there are technically 34 in the first book, in, in the Inferno. Um, and the outlier here, the, the, the odd man out, is actually the first canto, um, because none of it is spent in any of these, you know, otherworldly afterlife realms. Um, I want to stress this because Dante is very careful with his numbers here. It's, again, a very classic medieval sort of behavior to model the, the structure of your poem after the numerology of the Bible. Um, so notice that he has three books, again, modeled after the Trinity, um, as well as each of those books containing 33 cantos. Again, you've got, like, Trinity imagery and, and Trinity numerology here, but the one added canto means that instead of having 99 books, he has a perfect square number, round number, 100 books, thus emphasizing the sort of organization and the order of the universe. That despite the fact that it is all threes all the time, Trinity imagery is everywhere in this poem, even in the structure, it still yields a perfect round organized number. 10 times 10, another perfect square, and not just a perfect square, but like the most square square, what with it being, you know, 10, this perfectly even number that is used to sort of, uh, it's the number of fingers and, and thumbs we have, it's the number of toes we have, it's, you know, the base unit by which we count. Um, so Dante is very much emphasizing both the godliness of this universe, like the order of its creation, just as we saw in Genesis 1, um, as well as its, you know, specific holiness, the fact that it is rooted in this triune design, um, the trinity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, but that's pure structure stuff. Um, notice, again, he spends one canto on Earth, 33 cantos in Hell, 33 cantos in Purgatorio, 33 cantos in Paradise. That's how the poem works. Um, so let's look at this first canto, the canto that is the odd man out, the canto that is spent entirely on Earth. Um, and notice the, the setup here. In the midway of this our mortal life, I found me in a gloomy wood, astray, gone from the path direct, and even to tell it were no easy task, how savage wild that forest, how robust and rough its growth, which to remember only my dismay renews in bitterness not far from death. Now again, a lot of this is very highfalutin language, and you'll notice that our, our poet here, our translator, is, is trying to retain the meter as much as possible by using the occasional like con contraction, like entered or eaten instead of even. Um, weighed with no E, like 
to try and make these these words specifically one syllable instead of the usual two to you know keep the rhyme scheme and the meter going. Um, that's rough. I don't deny that that's rough. Um, like I like I said, this is this is a tough poem to get through on, on the best of occasions, and this is not the best of occasions. This is very much a, a, an old translation. Um, but look at the language. In the midway of this our mortal life, I found me in a gloomy wood. So Dante is middle-aged, like 40s, 50s, probably. Maybe late 30s. You know, people died earlier before then, um, or before now. A stray gone from the path direct. So he's in this gloomy wood because he has wandered off the correct path. Now this is a classic medieval setup. This is very much the way that many medieval poets, and, and especially the sort of allegorical writers, would present their characters. They are lost in a wood in the middle of their lives because they have gone astray from the right path. This is all biblical imagery, in a sense, or at least modified biblical imagery suited to the medieval perspective. There is the way to heaven, this clear, straight, narrow path as described in Matthew. We read that passage from uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And yet they, this person has wandered off of it. They have wandered into sin, the wilderness of sin, you'll notice. Um, this is how it is often presented, like, civilization usually symbolizes order, godliness, Christendom in some sense, whereas the wilderness or dark forests or any place without a path, that's usually, you know, a person who has wandered off the path into sin. And notice the emphasis here. Like, Dante is so distraught at even remembering the fact of this that he is upset to talk about it. Um, which, to remember only, he says, my dismay renews and bitterness not far from death. Um, like, it is, it was so wretched, it was so awful that Dante, you know, suffers even to remember it, to recall it here. Yet to discourse of what their good befell, all else will I relate discovered there. How first I entered it, I scarce can say. Such sleepy dullness in that instant weighed my senses down with the true path I left. But when a mountain's foot I reached, where closed the valley, that had pierced my heart with dread, I looked aloft, and saw his shoulders broad, already vested with that planet's beam who leads all wanderers safe through every way. Again, very highfalutin language here, like Dante is using very poetic, very metaphorical descriptions. What he's saying is, while wandering through this wilderness, he comes upon a hill, the mountain's foot that he reaches. And he looks to the top of the mountain and sees the shoulders of the mountain, like, you know, the, the top of the mountain, already vested with that planet's beam who leads all wanderers safe through every way, meaning the sun. Um, again, the medieval worldview does not distinguish between the sun and other planets. They, they do not have the requisite technology to distinguish between them, except insofar as one is super-duper bright, and the others only show up at night and only in, at weird times, although this has been carefully cataloged by medieval thinkers, just as it was by ancient thinkers. Um, astrology as a science is still alive and well, and there are even explanations for why they move in strange patterns, um, despite the fact that they don't have a... a heliocentric model of the universe at this point. Um, that's going to be a couple more centuries, I'm afraid. Um, notice that what he's saying symbolically, though, 
You know, here he is wandering through this dark forest, very much lost, totally astray from the right path, very much immured in his sin, and he comes upon this mountain, this new landmark, and on that landmark is the sun shining on the top of the mountain, and notice how he describes it, that planet's beam who leads all wanderers safe through every way. It is, again, a very typical medieval image, a very typical medieval metaphor to use the sun as an image of God, of holiness, of even heaven in some cases. You know, here is Dante, lost in the woods, gone astray from the correct path, and then he sees a glimpse of the sun. This like picture that allows him to to extricate himself from his circumstances. Obviously, all he needs to do is climb the mountain towards the sun, and this is basically a metaphor for entering paradise. Like he will reach heaven in this way, but he's immediately stopped. Then was a little respite to the fear. He says, "Hooray!" A little bit of, of a break. Now he's he's a little bit less less scared. But as the next stanza tells us. As he's journeying on over that lonely steep, the hinder foot still firmer, scarce the ascent began, when, lo, a panther, nimble, light, and covered with a speckled skin, appeared. Nor, when it saw me, vanished, rather strove to check my onward going, that oft times with purpose to retrace my steps I turned. So Dante is getting ready to go up the mountain towards salvation like both literal and metaphorical in this sense. He is going to be saved from his wilderness in the literal sense, but he's also going to be, you know, saved in the Christian heaven sense uh, for the allegorical reasons. When he's stopped by this panther, he calls it here. I'm not sure the translation is really all that great in this case, because you'll notice it has a speckled coat. Um, it's probably something leopard-adjacent, certainly big cat territory, but you'll notice that he specifically refers to a lion later on, so that's a different animal entirely. Whatever this animal is, there's probably some allegorical significance to it, but the medieval scholars are, are kind of divided as to what exactly Dante is referring to here. But you'll notice that there's not just the panther, but several big scary animals interfere. We get the, the panther, we get the lion, we get the, the wolf, the she-wolf, all big scary predators. And because of the big scary predators, you'll notice that Dante can't make it up the mountain. He's looking for another route, but rather than you know running away like wild animals usually do when they are encountered by humans, these animals are like dogging him, preventing him from progress. They are threatening him. Um, in medieval allegory, this would usually mean that they represent sin in some way, or at the very least, things that lead to sin. The she-wolf especially, you'll notice, um, she is frequently associated in this in this passage with hunger, um, so it would seem that this is envy or want, desire in some way. Like Dante apparently is suffering from threats from without, like the lion, probably in a metaphor for his own political suffering. Um, Dante historically was actually writing this poem while exiled from his home in Italy. Um, his political adversaries and enemies had very much like conspired against him and kicked him out of his own home, um, leaving him pretty much without a home to go to. Um, and he does all right. Like he's not, you know, wandering homeless in countries where he doesn't know language or anything. It's not that bad. Um, he, he still, you know, has a home and stuff, but he is very much smarting. Um, from this poor treatment, and he very much considers himself to be treated unfairly. Like, it is very much political machinations that have gotten Dante kicked, kicked out of his home. Um, so, 
again, between the threats from without, these political threats, again, probably represented in the lion and the, the panther, and then the, you know, just threat of being alone and sad, hungry and, and sort of probably not, like, totally destitute but poor, um, Dante has left the path of faith. Um, and every time that he tries to go back to it, these things keep getting in his way. Um, again, this is how a lot of medieval thinkers, a lot of medieval poets, a lot of medieval writers would have portrayed their struggles with their faith. This is the sort of imagery they would have used. Um, and Dante is presenting this as a very dire example. Like, he is doomed here. In all likelihood, he is going to be consumed by these wild animals, utterly destroyed. Either he's going to die from his ailments, or he maybe even take his own life. It's not entirely clear. The, the passage doesn't give us, like, a specific, and then he died, he would have died, except, um, sort of description. At any rate, Dante is beset on all sides. He is overwhelmed. He can't see a way out of the situation. He can't see a way back to his own faith, when all of a sudden, he is rescued. Um, when to the lower space with backward step I fell, my ken discerned the form of one whose voice seemed faint through long disuse of speech. When him in that great desert I espied, have mercy on me, cried I, I, cried I out aloud. Spirit or living man, whate'er thou be. He answered, now not man, man once I was, and bored of Lombard parents, Mantuana both, by country, when the power of Julius yet was scarcely firm. At Rome my life was passed beneath the mild Augustus in the time of fabled deities and false. Now, well, the introduction that we get here is fairly involved, fairly metaphorical, but just about any educated person in Dante's time would have recognized this immediately as Virgil. Um, the great poet of the Roman Empire, the poet who wrote the Aeneid. Like, he even makes this very clear. Dante says, A bard was I and made Anchises' upright son, namely Aeneas, the subject of my song, who came from Troy. Like, this is the association that Dante makes to him. Um, Virgil, to him, is primarily the writer of the Aeneid. Um, and he's going to make reference to the Aeneid frequently, here in Canto 1 and in Canto 2, as we will discuss. Um, but this means that we are, once again, in the ancient world. Um, as I stressed, you know, in the, the later medieval period, like, in the 11th century and stuff, we, we found all those texts of Plato and Aristotle. We found, as well, a bunch of great literary works that had been lost to the Western Roman Empire, including the Aeneid. Um, these were huge finds to the poets and writers of the time. But just as there was a little bit of friction when Aristotle was first sort of discovered and rediscussed in the medieval world, like a bunch of Christians sort of coming out of the woodwork to say, you know, well, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to adopt all these darn pagans with their pagan philosophy. Like, we have the Bible. What do we need with Aristotle? What, what the heck are we doing trying to combine these pagans with, with Christian thinking? Um, so it is also the case that Dante and, you know, many of the writers of the time we're grappling with this issue of how do we properly regard the ancient writers who were so awesome and so good and have written these texts that have endured for literally thousands of years at this point. How do we reconcile the fact that those are awesome, but they're written by pagans and they're, they're, not, they're not Christians? Like, how, how do we sort that out? Dante is actually really preoccupied with that in this poem. Like, we don't read necessarily all of the passages that deals that deal with that. Like, we don't even read the key passage, which is Canto 3, where we discover that 
Like, God has apparently set aside this entire place, kind of within hell, kind of not, where, like, all the philosophers and poets are hanging out. So, like, Homer and Aristotle and Plato and so on, they're all, like, sitting around this light of reason, like, talking philosophy and literature and stuff. Um, and this makes it bearable. Like, hell still sucks, and they are still very much in hell because, you know, they're pagans. They, they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't even believe in God. Um, therefore, they cannot go to heaven. They cannot you know, be in purgatory or, or in heaven. They can't work off unbelief. Um, but they do have some solace in this. They, they still are treated relatively decently. Like the noble pagans, Dante distinguishes from the rest of the sinners in hell. Um, but notice Virgil, Virgil shows up here and, and Dante immediately sort of identifies kinship with him. Um, glory and light of all the tuneful train, he says, may it avail me that I long with zeal have sought thy volume, and with love immense have conned it over. My master thou, and guide, thou he from whom alone I have derived that style, which for its beauty into fame exalts me. See the beast from whom I fled, oh save me from her, thou illustrious sage. So notice that, on the one hand, this definitely smacks of, like, self-insert fan fiction here, that, like, Dante has contrived a situation where he gets to hang out with Virgil, the coolest poet ever! He was, like, the best one, you can tell, because he says so. Um... I get to hang out with Virgil for like most of this trip through through paradise through uh, the inferno and purgatory, not paradise. Virgil very much emphasizes he's not allowed to go to paradise because you know pagan. He has to stay in hell and apparently can visit purgatory under these special conditions. But we'll get into that. Um, suffice it to say that Dante is really excited that not only is he getting rescued, but he's like getting rescued by his personal hero, like Virgil reborn at this point, like, 13, 1400 years old. Um, but notice, too, that there is this kinship. Like, Dante says, you know, I am a poet because I copied your technique. The, the praise I have received is because of my admiration for you. This is kind of a theme in its own right. And you'll notice that Virgil himself has not, like, been dispatched under his own steam. Like, Virgil is not normally allowed to come to Earth. Um, this, is, this is a little strange for him. Um, but notice that he does, in fact, save him. Like, Virgil does intervene, and he very much says, you know, you can't, you can't get there from here. Thou need, must needs another way pursue if thou wouldst escape from out that savage wilderness. Um, what he's basically saying is, like, Dante, you can't get up the mountain this way. Like, you can't go directly from sin in the wilderness to the mountaintop like, that's why the, the animals are fighting you here. Like, that, that's just not how it works. You're going to have to go another route. And Virgil says, you know, I am going to provide that route. I am going to walk you through the entire created order. Like, we're going to go through hell. We're going to go through purgatory. We're going to go to paradise. You're going to see the entire project here. Um, and that's the only way that you're actually going to be able to extricate yourself from the situation. And so he does, and will. Like, he guides him through all of the Inferno. Those are the 34 passages. They successfully make it, like, through the center of the world, because Dante's view, like, the Inferno apparently is all underground, and, like, half the Earth is, like, just a, like, a shallow crust over the 
hell that where all these people are being tormented and stuff. And then they like meet Satan, like he's chewing on the centers and he's huge and he's got these huge wings and he's like in the frozen over part of hell. And then they like pass through the center and they come out the other side and they go up to the mountain of purgatory and then at that point Virgil isn't allowed to proceed. Um as he as he says, um you know, he, he's describing it here in this passage. I for thy prophet pondering now devise that thou mayst follow me, and I thy guide will lead thee hence through an eternal space where thou shalt hear despairing shrieks, i.e. the inferno, and see spirits of old tormented who invoke a second death, and those next view who dwell content in fire, for that they hope to come whenever the time may be among the blessed, into whose regions if thou then desire to send, a spirit worthier than I must lead thee, in whose charge when I depart thou shalt be left. But that almighty king who reigns above, a rebel to his law, judges me, and therefore hath decreed that to his city none through me should come. So he's basically like giving you the Cliff's Notes version of the Divine Comedy. Um, Dante will absolutely guide, or Dante will be guided by Virgil through the Inferno, through Hell. Um, they will come out the other side, and then he will be escorted through Purgatory still by Virgil, but at the gates of, of Paradise, it, Virgil can't proceed because he is a rebel, according to God, um, because he is a pagan. He has rejected God's teaching. Um, now, a couple of things, because we didn't actually discuss this when we were talking about Christianity, and we kind of need to here, just to understand the context here. Um, so, the Christian view of how the afterlife works is... Another thing that has developed historically, like, again, it's not just one and done. The, the view of hell that Dante is sort of suggesting here and that will become the model for, you know, hell as it is discussed in our own time is not exactly in sync with the New Testament. Like, the New Testament is actually pretty, pretty vague on the subject of how hell and heaven works to the point that there are quite a few theologians these days who don't posit the existence of some kind of, like, eternal heaven as second realm full of clouds and pearly gates and stuff. Like, there are a fair number of theologians who would argue that the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus is describing it throughout the New Testament and as it is described by the other, the other writers there, is, in fact, not, you know, location B for eternal souls, but rather, like instead a state of mind that will prevail on the earth at a certain time. Like, Jesus in Revelation, like, takes over the world. That's that's a thing that he does. And then, you know, there's like a millennium reign on earth where everybody is happy and all the tears are gone and everybody, you know, is blissfully in conjunction with God in all of his forms. Like, this is not, you know, you, your soul gets carried up to heaven, although there's imagery there too. It's it's very, very tricky and not very clear at all. But the medievals were absolutely dead set on figuring this out. Like, they frequently, you know, boil down the, the sort of cryptic New Testament discussion on the afterlife and try and organize it into this very orderly, very, you know, clear-cut sort of system, just as Dante is presenting it here. Um, but the short version of this is, as you probably know, good people, i.e. Christians, i.e. believers, people who have received the love of God, not necessarily good people in the sense that they are especially awesome. Nobody gets into heaven for being awesome in the Christian 
theology, or at least not in good Christian theology. It is because you believed in God, because God took mercy on you. That's why you go to heaven. Um, those who don't, those who don't receive God's mercy, those who don't believe, however you want to frame it, those people go to hell. And hell is bad. It is not entirely clear how bad hell is. Jesus is pretty quick to describe this as, you know, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, um, which is evocative enough, I think. Um, the idea that it is eternally burning and stuff is probably borrowed from Revelation. Um, there's definitely a point where, like, God in, you know, reading the names in the Book of Life and judging everybody, like, chucks Satan and everyone who believed in him into a giant, like, lake of fire, which I suspect is also wrapped into the hell imagery here. Um, but it's also picking up details from, like, Hades imagery, from Greek mythology, and there's a good bit of Zoroastrian thinking that's sort of sprinkled in me here for fun. Like, the Christian conception of heaven and hell is messy at the best of times, and that at least has biblical precedent. Um, when you get to purgatory, it's a whole other ballgame. Like, I haven't done a whole heck of a lot of research into the Christian notion of purgatory, and it's been a while since I did the History of Christianity series at my church, so I'm kind of rusty on this, but my understanding is the purgatory discussion really doesn't get going until, like, late in the whole Catholic theological history. Like, we're probably seeing the earliest vestiges of it in 6th, 7th century Catholicism, um, and then it won't reach, like, canon until, like, 11th, 12th century, so, like, just before Dante is writing. Keep in mind, like, the, the Orthodox Church has no idea of, of the purgatory discussion. Like, they, they have nothing comparable. Um, and one of the first things that Protestantism is going to throw out is purgatory. Um, like, if it performs a, a really important function in Catholic theology. Um, namely that, like, okay, so bad people go to hell and good people go to heaven, but what do you do with the sinners who haven't sinned mortally, who still have died with sins on their conscience? Well, they have to work it off in purgatory. Um, sanctification is a difficult process for the Catholics. For the Protestants, it's a whole different thing, which, again, hopefully we'll get the time to talk about when we get our, like, legit discussion into how the Renaissance works and how the Reformation works and all that fun stuff. Um, suffice it to say that for Protestants, sanctification is something that doesn't happen instantly, but it is something that happens, like, off-screen. Um, it's not a place. It's, you know, something that God does to you and for you over the course of your life and then over the course of, I guess, death. But the Catholics, they very much have it worked out. It is a place. Purgatory is the third location. Like, you can go to hell if you are unredeemable, and Dante even stresses, like, above the gates of hell are written, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here, because this is literally true. If you are in hell, there is no hope for you. There is no way that you're ever going to get to heaven, period, the end. Like, the conversation is over. But you'll notice that as uh, Virgil stresses here, Purgatory is the place where those next view who dwell content in fire, for that they hope to come, whenever that time may be, among the blessed. If you are in purgatory, as much as it is not a nice place to be, and you are probably going to suffer, and you are probably going to have to work hard, and things are going to be rough for you, it's okay, and you gladly endure it, because congratulations, you made it. Like, you are guaranteed at some point in the future to make it to heaven, to be in paradise. There is hope in purgatory, and it causes people to endure. Um, 
So again, purgatory is rough, and yes, there is fire there, and there are torments there, because this act of purgation is occasionally painful and difficult. Um, but it is worth it, because at the end of the day, you will end up in paradise, and one day purgatory will be empty and not be, you know, useful anymore. Um, this is the way that Dante frames it, this is the way that the Catholicism typically frames it. Again, Dante is kind of wrapped up in Catholic teaching at this point, and the theology is at least in part indebted to him. Um, it's tricksy. But suffice it to say, those are your three options. You die with a mortal sin on your conscience and you go to hell, no hope for you, you will just stay there forever, be eternally damned, wailing, gnashing of teeth, suffering, however you want to frame it. Um, if you successfully die with no sins on your conscience, i.e. you like received confession directly before your death, or, you know, mostly, like, at the very least, the Catholic Church is quick to offer, you know, indulgences and, and other sort of worldly goods that will reduce your time in purgatory, if not eliminate it altogether. It is very rare for someone to, like, successfully go directly to heaven, as I understand Catholic theology, though, you know, different writers will differ about this. Um, or you will go to purgatory if you do, in fact, have sins on your conscience or do need to work off some, some bad behavior. Um... Hooray for you, you still will make it to, to paradise at some point, it just might take a while. But literally, what does it matter? Because you have all eternity to work at it. And once you get to heaven, you'll have all eternity there. Um, so no matter how many centuries or millennia you spend in purgatory, who cares? Because at the end of the day, it's followed up by eternity and bliss. So it's worth it, no matter what. Um, so there's your, your brief, like... Professor Kozlowski's Guide to the Catholic View of the Afterlife in Five Minutes. Um, this is the world that, that Dante is going to be exploring. This is the world that Virgil is going to lead him through. Um, but now Dante brings up a really interesting question, um, and one that I do want to spend some time on, because there's a lot going on here. That's why I included Canto II. Um, Dante asks the question, why? Why is this, why is this happening to me? Like... He frames it considerably more eloquently. Um, Bard, thou who art my guide, consider well if virtue be in me sufficient heir to this high enterprise thou trust me. Why do I get to see this? Like, what, what the heck did I do that, that gives me this, this privilege of getting to see the entire machinations of God's divine order? Um, he even makes a couple of comparisons here. Thou hast told that Silvius' sire, yet clothed in incorruptible flesh among the immortal tribes, had entrance and was there sensible present. Meaning, there's this passage in the Aeneid where, where Aeneas gets to see Hades. Like, he is given this opportunity to enter the underworld, and he travels there, and he sees a bunch of dead people, and he has, like, conversations. This was something that happened fairly frequently in Greek and Roman mythology, and part of the reason why Virgil, like, includes this passage is because he's definitely trying to one-up the Odyssey, because um, Odysseus has a similar adventure with the, the spirits of the dead. Um, so Virgil also gets to see this, and but notice that, like, uh, Dante has a justification for this, like, locked and loaded. Um, uh, yet if heaven's great lord almighty to foe Almighty foe to ill, such favor showed in contemplation of the high effect, both what and who from him should issue forth, it seems in reason's judgment well deserved. Sith he of Rome, and of Rome's empire wide, and heaven's imperial height was chosen sire, both which, if truth be spoken, were ordained and established for the holy place, where sits who to great Peter's sacred chair succeeds. He from this journey in thy song renowned learned things that to his victory gave rise and to the papal robe. 
This is some convoluted medieval theologizing right here, and it is fascinating, and I, as a consequence, can't help but, like, discuss it a little bit. Again, because it is just really interesting, but also because it is kind of really striking to us engaged in our act of historical understanding and, and explanation. Because this is exactly what Dante is doing here. He says, okay, Virgil, so you told us about how Aeneas got to see the underworld. Well, that makes sense, because Aeneas is kind of a big deal. Um, Aeneas founds Rome. That's the way that Virgil describes it happening. That's the way that all Roman history sort of explains itself, like Livy does something similar. According to Roman tradition, Aeneas fleeing from the sack of Troy, the only one of Priam's sons to survive this destruction, sails all across the Mediterranean to Italy and sets up shop, makes friends with the, the native Latins, and through their intermixture, Aeneas's Trojan contingent and Latinus's Latin contingent, Rome will be born. So by that logic, Rome considers itself to be the inheritor of Troy. Um, the great city of Rome is the, like, second draft of the Troy that fell in the Trojan War. And this is a big deal for the Romans, because they consider themselves to be, you know, rivals of the Greeks, as always, but also greater than the Greeks, and Troy was a greater city, and the only reason it fell was because Odysseus was such an ass. Like, it's this whole thing. Um, suffice it for our purposes to say that Dante takes this in a different direction. Aeneas founded Rome, and Rome is the holy city. To great Pe who to great Peter's sacred chair succeeds. This is the seat of the papacy. It is the place that will inherit the Christian faith, the Christian tradition. Rome is the center of Christendom. Aeneas founded Rome. Therefore, it stands to reason that Aeneas gets special treatment from God in order to be able to see the afterlife. He was, in his own weird pagan way, part of this grand Christian tradition. And Virgil will even go so far as to say that Aeneas actually gets special treatment from God. Not just that he gets to hang out in limbo, but he actually does get to go to heaven. Which is weird. Like, I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure on this. I'm, like, pretty sure it's been a while since I've read this. Um, or, like, all of the Divine Comedy. But I'm pretty sure when they actually get to Limbo, like, Aeneas isn't there. Because he gets special treatment. Again, this is very much Dante reconciling, like, the pagan tradition and the pagan literary tradition with the Christian tradition. Notice how he's doing it. He's basically saying, you know, there is room for certain pagan accomplishments in Christian teaching. And in fact, many of those pagan accomplishments lead directly to the success of the Christian plan. Namely, Aeneas founds the city that will become the heart of, of Christendom, and therefore he is, by proxy, Christian. Um, he, his work suffices the great project here. Um, but notice, too, the context of this, you know, historical discussion, his sort of historical revisionism, where Aeneas is actually a Christian hero because he founded the city that's going to ultimately be Christendom, even though he didn't believe in Jesus, and even though he was a pagan, and even though, you know, like, asterisks abound, but still he gets the, the apology here. Um, the question that he's ultimately going to ask is, well, why me then? Not Aeneas I, nor Paul. Myself I deem not worthy, and none else will deem me. I, if on this voyage then I venture, fear it will in folly end. Thou who art wise, better my meaning knowest than I can speak. So what, what 
uh, Dante is effectively asking here is, okay, so I understand why Aeneas got to see the afterlife. He is ultimately going to found Rome, and seeing the afterlife helps him to, you know, have the knowledge necessary to found Rome, and therefore, you know, the papacy and Christendom and so on and so forth. He got a glimpse of the project that was to come, and as a consequence, you know, he, yeah, sure, he, he's totally holy, he totally get, gets a pass. Um, likewise, he says, you know, I can totally see why Paul got to get his vision, like, famous vision on the road to Damascus. Paul, who has literally just come from persecuting Christians, shows up, like, on the road to Damascus, and Jesus just, like, appears and is like, Paul, you are a Christian now, bam! And Paul's like, oh, snap, I'm a Christian now, also I'm blind, somebody help me. Um, and it's this big thing. Suffice it to say that, like, both Aeneas and Paul are major, major players in the Christian project. It makes sense that they would get this divine intervention as far as sort of steering them out of the wilderness of doubt and despair and sinfulness. But why me? What is so awesome about Dante that he gets special treatment here? And this is what I really want to emphasize. Like, more than any other single passage in this entire poem... I want to look at Virgil's answer here, because it is very much telling about the way that Dante understands love and the way that Dante understands the created order. Um, so, as one who unresolves what he hath last resolved and with new thoughts changes his purpose from his first intent removed, even such was I on that dun coast, wasting in thought my enterprise at first so eagerly embraced. So Dante is scared. He's having second thoughts. He's thinking of turning back. He's like, dude, this is not for me. Like, I am way too small potatoes to get a vision of this magnitude. And Virgil responds, If right thy words I scan, replied that shade magnanimous, thy soul is by vile fear assailed, which oft so overcasts a man that he recoils from noblest resolution like a beast at some false semblance in the twilight gloom. So, in short, he's saying, dude, you're scared, get over it. Like, people are scared all the time. It shouldn't stop you from experiencing this really awesome thing that is, in fact, devised for you. That from this terror thou mayst free thyself, I will instruct thee why I came, and what I heard in that same instant when for thee grief touched me first. Basically, let me tell you why you don't have anything to worry about. Let me tell you why I was dispatched to get you. Um... I was among the tribe who rest suspended when a dame, so blessed and lovely I besought her to command, called me. Her eyes were brighter than the star of day, and she with gentle voice and soft, angelically tuned her speech addressed. So, Virgil's minding his own business in limbo. Like, he's hanging out with all the, the virtuous pagans, which is his natural home in the whole created order here, so he's, like, bumming around with Homer and Plato and Aristotle and all those various philosophers who, you know, are, are just not Christian and therefore cannot go to heaven, but are not bad and who have practiced virtue and, as a consequence, get a bit of a pass from Dante here. Um, he's bumming around with them when all of a sudden this lady shows up, a dame so blessed and lovely, this beautiful woman, and she calls him. Her eyes were brighter than the star of day, and she with gentle voice and soft, angelically tuned her speech addressed. O oh, courteous shade of Mantua, she says, thou whose fame yet lives and shall live long as nature lasts, a friend not of my fortune but myself on the wide desert in his road has met hindrance so great 
that he through fear has turned. So this random hot lady who is just awesome and has this angelic voice, note the detail there, addresses Virgil and says, hey, I've got this friend and he has turned off the proper path. Through fear, through hindrance, it's been a rough time for him. Now much I dread, lest he past help have strayed, and I be risen too late for his relief, from what in heaven of him I heard. I hear that things are really rough for him. I am scared for his fate, and I'm worried that I am too late to save him. Speed now, and by thy eloquent persuasive tongue, and by all means for his deliverance meet, assist him. So she goes to Virgil, and she says, go help him. Go, go to Earth, go appear as a shade, go help this guy out. Like, he is my friend, we are close. You know, not the, the friend of my fortune, she says. So, you know, they didn't actually get to hang out together all that much. But friend of my heart. Um, not of my fortune, but myself on the wide desert in his road has met. She is his friend. She considers him a friend, even if they did not get to spend fortune together. Um, things were bad between them because of circumstance, but they did have this friendship. We'll talk about this more in a moment. Go help my friend. He is in a lot of tough situations right now. He is turned off the path. I'm worried he's going to die horribly. Go help him. So to me will comfort spring. Help him, and you'll help me as well. I who now bid thee on this errand forth am Beatrice. From a place I come revisited with joy. Love brought me thence, who prompts my speech. When in my master's sight I stand, thy praise to him I oft will tell. Now it's explanation time. So... The woman who identifies herself here, Beatrice, is the one who is apparently interceding on Dante's behalf. And by intercession, I mean she is going out of her way to reconcile Dante with God. That's what intercession means. Like, Dante cannot make it up the mountain by himself. He does not know the way out of the wood that he has wandered into. He can't get out of it under his own steam. Again, this is usual Christian teaching. Like, you cannot save yourself from sin by the means of just good works and, and just gosh darn stubbornness. Like, no, somebody has to intervene. Somebody has to interact. God has to have grace on you. And that usually means that somebody is going to intercede for you, either because, you know, somebody is praying for you and for your salvation, or because, like, somebody was dispatched to you, somebody who cares about you, or maybe you're going to intercede with Jesus or with one of the saints. Like... Any one of these could speak up for you and get you some help. Beatrice is Dante's intercessor here. And she is significant to him historically as well. The story goes, and while I'm not 100% sure about the details here, Dante and Beatrice had fallen in love, like hardcore love. This was, you know... In Dante's youth, Beatrice was very young at this point. They had pledged to be married. Everything was going great. And then Beatrice got sick and died. So Dante has been removed from Beatrice, and he pines for her for the rest of his life. And notice that it is Beatrice here 
who intercedes for Dante. When Dante is wandering through the woods of evil, the woods of sinfulness, when he has lost his way and can't extricate himself, Beatrice is the one who goes all the way from heaven to hell in order to ask Virgil to help Dante by walking him through this whole fancy divine comedy thing, seeing all of the created order, and ultimately steering him back towards life and salvation. Think about this in the context of the medieval texts that we've read thus far. Think about this through, on the one hand, the sort of like high Christian tradition where love is at its best, when it is, you know, the love of neighbor, this agape, this kind of transcendental love, this, you know, you show love to your neighbor because God showed love to you relationship, but how it also fits with the courtly love tradition that Dante has been pining for Beatrice forever, that it is the pining that has strengthened his soul, and it is ultimately this love that is going to not just noble him, but redeem him. Beatrice's love for Dante is so powerful that it will, in fact, turn to salvific purpose. Dante and Beatrice, through their love, save one another or at least Beatrice saves Dante. That's the emphasis that I want to drive home here. This is the meeting of those two medieval traditions, the courtly love tradition, which seemed to be sort of in opposition to the more traditional Christian understanding of love, and that really high transcendent Christian attitude towards love, where it is like the highest of the virtues, the, it is God itself. Like, now these are one and the same thing for, for Dante in the Inferno. Da Beatrice's love for Dante is so powerful that it saves him. Dante's love for Beatrice is so powerful, so all-consuming, so total and complete, that Beatrice becomes, for Dante, the representative of all goodness, all holiness, all sacredness, all Christian hope, in a sense. And this is not just, like, purely metaphorical. In the context of the story, that's exactly what happens. Like, Beatrice is not only the force that saves Dante, literally, but she is also the highest goal to which he aspires. Like, we see Beatrice in the third-to-last canto. This is basically as high as Dante can get, short of Mary, before he, like, blacks out and can't even accept how awesome and holy and perfect the entire universe is. Like, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. Um, but I want to emphasize this here, that Beatrice is, on the one hand, the perfect guide, the perfect intercessor, and this love that they feel for each other, this romantic love, mind you, erotic love, now being conflated with the agape love. They are one and the same thing. Now that love is so transcendent, so powerful, that Dante is saved from death and sin by Beatrice, by their love for one another. Now notice the mechanics as well. So when Virgil asks, you know, like, when Virgil asks what she's doing here, Beatrice explains the situation, explains that, like, 
Virgil would be doing her a favor, and she is beautiful and angelic, as it is described here, um, and she offers to intercede on his behalf as well. Like, I'm going to mention you to my master, obviously meaning God here, and hopefully get you a little penance as well. Like, maybe maybe he'll be gracious to you for, for this act that you've undertaken. Um, now, Virgil initially has his own concerns. Oh, lady, by whose influence alone mankind excels whatever is contained within that heaven which hath the smallest orb, so thy command delights me, that to obey, if it were done already, would seem late. Notice that the description here, Lady, by whose influence alone mankind excels whatever is contained within that heaven which hath the smallest orb. Like, he's talking about, you are more beautiful than the moon here. You are more beautiful than the heavenly spheres, which to Dante is, like, not just a metaphorical turn of phrase. Like, the heavenly spheres are where heaven is located in this order. He is suggesting that Beatrice is more beautiful and more holy than much of heaven. Um, and I want to sort of poke at this. Like, on the one hand, this sounds beautiful. It is gorgeous. It is gorgeous poetry. It is this extremely flattering view of Beatrice. It's obvious that Dante loves this girl from the bottom of his heart. Like, this is some of the most beautiful love poetry that you will ever find in the entire history of all literatures, period, the end. But on the other hand, I want to stress that for a more traditional medieval perspective, this would probably be awful close to blasphemy. Like, hair's breadth close. And this is what I want to emphasize here. Christianity has had a lot of different attitudes on love over the past thousand years of its development at this point. It has had a lot of different attitudes on exactly how love works, how love you know interacts with divinity, but mostly it is kept to those sort of degrees. Sexual love is one thing, holy love is something else. You can feel both for the same person, but they are not the same feeling. Sexual love will often lead you astray. Remember Paul giving all those warnings, you know, better to marry than to burn, with passion. If you are unmarried, stay unmarried, because if you get married, you will focus on the worldly things. Remember Augustine taking this very much to heart. You know, sexual love is what kept him in his sin for so long, kept him from God, practically damned him, practically damned his friends and the people close to him. Augustine regrets his commitment to sexuality, to his erotic love. Notice that for the courtly love tradition, even Andreas Capellanus, despite the fact that he seems to think that courtly love is awesome enough to warrant like writing pages and pages and pages about, ultimately says, and don't do it. It is not holy. It is wrong. It hurts. It is bad for you. It will, in fact, cause you to obsess about worldly things instead of godly things. Dante is saying that the worldly things are the godly things. And that, like I said, is dangerously close to blasphemy. He is dangerously close to holding Beatrice up and saying, she is my ideal, not God, not Jesus. Not the holy Christian truth of the Bible. Beatrice is the embodiment of heaven for Dante. And there is a lot of discussion about how this works. Like, not explicitly, not at the time, but I want to very much emphasize that this is riding a line here. 
Like, those who had come before Dante would probably have considered this to be blasphemy. Those who come after Dante accept this as granted. This is what I mean by a huge sea change. And it's a sea change that came gradually. Again, you can see sort of hints of this in Aquinas. You can see hints of this in other medieval writers. But Dante expresses it in its purest form. Love for Beatrice, for Dante, is an embodiment of the entire heavenly experience. It is an embodiment of hope. It can stand in the place of his love for God. It's not replacing him, not for Dante, although other biblical writers may very well raise eyebrows at this and question this. This seems dangerously close to that second commandment. You shall have no other idols. You shall not have graven images. This seems real close to that here. And you would be right if you are, you know, thinking about the Christian Christianity we've discussed before and are looking at this and are like, mm, this doesn't sound kosher. But this is going to be the framework for a lot of Christian love discussion in the future. That's why I wanted to include it. Again, it's not terribly explicit. We will get other poets, like Shakespeare, holding up their beloved as though they are like the pinnacle of accomplishment at the same time as they're going to describe love in other ways. But sort of insidiously, quietly, Dante's view on love is going to become dominant, and nobody's really going to challenge it, at least not to my knowledge. Like, I don't read a whole heck of a lot of medieval criticism. I don't know what other commentators have sort of weighed in on Dante, if there were any scholars at the time who were like, dude's a blasphemer, this is not acceptable. But I do want to emphasize that for the purposes of understanding, like, the thrust of history and the way that Christianity and love have changed, Dante represents a big move. We're not entirely sure how far, how long this has been coming, certainly since the courtly love tradition or how sort of it's going to immediately develop and change people's attitudes going forward. But this is a very clear indication of the change that has occurred and the direction in which things are tending. Keep this in mind. This is a big moment here. Um, now, Virgil is happy to see Beatrice. He's happy to help her out. Again, like, she is obviously a messenger from heaven. He very much flatters her here by comparing herself to heaven itself. But Beatrice gives us more explanation of what exactly went down here. Since thou so deeply wouldst inquire, I will instruct thee briefly why no dread hinders my entrance here. Those things alone are to be feared whence evil may proceed. None else, for none are terrible beside. I am so framed by God, thanks to his grace. So, yeah, I'm in hell, and I'm not worried about it because, you know, I've got God's help and protection, so, like, what do I have to worry about from hanging around a bunch of tormented people? Um, that any sufferance of your misery touches me not, nor flame of that fierce fire assails me. Like, I don't feel tormented. It doesn't seem miserable here. Like, even Dante, when he's wandering through the Inferno, even though he does seem to be under some kind of protection, either by Virgil or elsewhere, like, he gets scared, and things get dicey, and he passes out, like, frequently. Like, it's, it's overwhelming for him in many cases. Beatrice does not have this problem. She does not feel any of the torments going on around her. She is apparently protected in that sense. But notice that she is protected not by, like, some kind of magic god shield or something, but it seems to be framed as though, you know, she cannot be hurt by them. Like, she is already saved. There's nothing that hell can do to her to stop her from being saved. 
So there's nothing to be afraid of. She can't be physically harmed. She's not physical. She can't be spiritually harmed. She's already saved. There's literally nothing for her to worry about here. Um, so in some sense, it's more mental than physical. But notice the description. In the high heaven, a blessed dame besides, who mourns with such effectual grief that hindrance which I send thee to remove, that God's stern judgment to her will inclines. To Lucia calling her, she thus bespake, Now doth thy faithful servant need thy aid, and I commend him to thee. At her word sped Lucia, of all cruelty the foe, and coming to the place where I abode, seated with Rachel, her of ancient days, she thus addressed me, Thou true praise of God, Beatrice, why is not thy succor lent to him who so much loved thee as to leave for thy sake all the multitude admires? Notice the relationship here. We've got Lucia and Rachel, both of whom are important medieval sort of representative figures. Lucia is like clear seeing. She's apparently the one who's like seeing what's going on on Earth. So she's the one who addresses Beatrice and is like, hey, have you noticed that Dante is kind of floundering in the forest of darkness and despair right now? Maybe do something about that because you love him, right? We also have Rachel, who is apparently like the medieval allegorical figure for like wisdom and, and insight. Um, Rachel being the beloved daughter of Jacob, it's a whole Old Testament reference and not something we can afford to get into right now because that is yet another huge messy story in Genesis that we've already dealt with so many huge messy stories. Suffice it to say that Lucy and Rachel ultimately plead with Beatrice, hey, go save your pal, and she does. Um, Dost thou not hear how pitiful his wail, nor mark the death which in the torrent flood, swole mightier than a sea, him struggling holds? Ne'er among men did any with such speed haste to their prophet, flee from their annoy, as when these words were spoken. I came here, down from my blessed seat, trusting the force of thy pure eloquence, which thee and all who have marked it into honor brings. When she had ended, her bright beaming eyes cheerful, she turned aside, whereat I felt redoubled zeal to serve thee, as she willed, thus am I come. I save thee from the beast, who thy near way across the goodly mount prevented. What is this comes o'er thee, then? Why? Why dost thou hang back? So Virgil explains all of this, describes how apparently Lucius sent Beatrice to Virgil to intercede, like, again, intercession after intercession here, and Virgil is ultimately taking Dante to paradise where Beatrice is going to be his guide. Like, that's the kicker here. Once, in fact, the changing of the guard occurs, once Virgil reaches the high, the uttermost point to which he is allowed to go, because remember, he is still a rebel, he goes all the way to the top of Purgatory and helps Dante out the whole way, and then Beatrice will be the guide from then on. The only exception, of course, being here, in the passage that we have for our reading today, Canto 31 to 33. Notice that, like, the first thing that Dante acknowledges is, you know, he's looking for Beatrice and she's not there anymore. Um, and in fact, there's just some random old dude who's, like, guiding him at this point. Um, so on the second page of Canto 31, this is like the third stanza down, um, or rather, the second stanza down, it says, For Beatrice, when I thought to see, I saw instead a senior at my side, robed as the rest in glory. Joy benign glowed in his eye, or his cheek diffused with gestures such as spake a father's love. And whither is she vanished, straight I asked. By Beatrice summoned, he replied, I come to aid thy wish. Looking aloft at the third circle from the highest, there behold her on the throne, wherein her merit hath placed her. 
Notice, Beatrice is not just some random, like, girl amongst the saved in heaven. She is in the second highest circle and has a throne there. She has been hanging out with Rachel, the, like, patron saint of wisdom and insight, like, one of the biblical patriarchs, one of the ancestresses of Christ himself. And, in fact, the only two things we're going to see that sort of are in better, higher circles than Beatrice herself is the Virgin Mary, who, you know, obviously she gets, like, top billing here, and God, the Trinity itself, at which points words fail and Dante passes out and the poem ends. Like, this is as high as Dante can reach. Beatrice is, like, number three on the list of awesome things that are in heaven. This is how much Dante loves her, that he has immortalized her in this poem in such a way that she is, like, next to freaking Rachel and the patriarch wives in terms of how holy she is. And notice that the patriarchs aren't even here. This is something else we absolutely need to sort of acknowledge and recognize here. Notice that, again, with the exception of the Trinity, which is typically framed as masculine, but is here sort of framed as though they're like orbs or just like mystical spheres, like... Dante, his words very much fail, and he expresses, like, he's like, dude, I can't talk about what I saw there. It was so huge. It was so incomprehensible. Like, God is this totally otherworldly entity, completely alien and inhuman to Dante. There's nothing that Dante can say to describe the Trinity as he sees it, as he understands it. And we should remember, like, in our discussion of Aquinas and in our discussion of Augustine, like, our discussion, the brief discussion I had there of, of the allegorical language, the fact that Aquinas acknowledges, like, you can't talk about God in positive terms. You can't describe him. It would probably be blasphemy to even try, and therefore we sort of talk around these subjects. Dante is doing that here. But notice the effect. Like, notice not just what he says, but what that does to us, because it is very much going to get carried away by other modern philosophers, and we're going to see it very much in its highest form in Romanticism. Notice that your eyes glaze off the page for a lot of this reading. Like, as much as I have tons of details to pick out in the first two cantos, I don't for cantos 31 to 33. Like, mostly I just want to emphasize the big picture here. Beatrice is on a really important throne in the second to highest circle of heaven. Mary gets top billing along with a whole bunch of, like, patriarch wives, and not the patriarchs themselves. And then God is incomprehensible. Something beyond us. Words fail to describe. And as a consequence, it seems that the last real vision we get of paradise, the last description that we can identify with and understand is the women and not the traditionally masculine understood trinity. Like, think about this for a moment. This entire poem has been framed as Dante being saved from his sin and evil and lostness by Beatrice, the woman he loves, and the woman who loves him. This model, this paragon of perfection, who Dante can't say enough good things about, and who may very well be walking the line of blasphemy in praising quite as highly as he is. This is the highest thing that we can understand, or at least the second highest thing we understand. 
next to Mary herself, like the holiest of holy women. Like, notice in, in Canto 32, where, where we finally get, like, this description of, of Mary and this sort of address that they have between them, where, like, around her are singing all of these angels. You know, he, he writes, this is like the top of the, the 13th page of, of the excerpt, um, that whatsoever I had yet beheld had not so much suspended me with wonder or shown me such similitude of God. And he who had to her descended once on earth, now hailed in heaven, and on poisoned wing, Ave Maria, gratia plena, sang, to whose sweet anthem all the blissful court from all parts answering rang, that holier joy brooded the deep serene. Now once again, I'm not entirely sure when the cult of Mary really started out in the Catholic Church. This is another one of those big Catholic theology discussions, but it is late. Like, I should very much emphasize, most of the discussions of medieval thinkers that we've had, with the very much the exception of, of Aquinas and probably the courtly love tradition, that typically is pre-Mary. Like, not pre-Mary in the sense that, like, Mary does in fact appear in the New Testament. Like, she is the mother of Jesus, she is a big deal, that is important. But the idea that Mary should be venerated, that Mary is this primary intercessor between God and human beings, that, like, the idea that, like, everyone should have a Mary icon in their house. This is a relatively recent development, like, at least 8th and 9th century, probably not canonical until 11th or 12th, maybe even later than that. Mary worship is a new development, typical of you know, the, the sort of changing medieval world, the changing medieval focus, and specifically the late medieval world. But notice that it is already so entrenched in this poem that Mary is, you know, top billing here. Like, the only thing that Dante sees after he sees Mary and the veneration of Mary and all the angels sitting around venerating Mary and all worshiping her is God. Like, God himself. And God is incomprehensible and not something we can talk about and therefore kind of not all that interesting to discuss for our purposes. The Renaissance is about to do this entire sea change with respect to how people are understood, how art is done, how science is done, how knowledge is grasped. And you will find in a lot of Renaissance painting, Mary features incredibly strongly. Like, possibly the two most commonly painted subjects during the Renaissance are going to be, on the one hand, the Pietà, like Mary holding the dead body of Jesus in her arms, and Mary the mother with her child, like Mary hanging out with little baby Jesus. Like Raphael, Michelangelo, all of the other Ninja Turtles, they're all very interested in the portrayal of Mary as this beatific figure, this holiest of mothers. They are obsessed with her. She is to them the most most accessible part of the div of the highest divine circles. They cannot envision God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit except allegorically, symbolically, because there's so much body of literature emphasizing that God is un, un not able to be understood, indistinct or indescribable. Um, words fail, as Dante emphasizes here. But if that's the case, that means that the words that we, or the beings that we can describe, Beatrice, Mary, they tend to get 
higher depictions by these artists, by these thinkers, by these philosophers and theologians. If you're going to write a really awesome poem, you're probably not going to be doing it about Jesus or God anymore because they are inaccessible. You have been told, words fail. So why not dedicate a poem to Mary instead? That's safe and high enough that it is worthy of veneration. But notice the sort of changes that are occurring here. Notice how this kind of springs from the art of courtly love, that, that whole veneration of women, like your, your letty, your, your beloved woman, your, your noble lady who you, you venerate and who you love, like she becomes everything to the courtly lover. She becomes his obsession. He is constantly thinking about her. Like Andreas Capellanus even says this, like he should be thinking about her all the time. Uh, she is constantly in his thoughts. He is constantly consumed with thinking about her. These, this courtly love tradition does seem to make ladies, the veneration of women, into this sort of stand-in for God, for Jesus, for holiness. And we see it at its keenest here in Dante, where Beatrice is explicitly the one who saves him, where Mary is explicitly in the highest chair of heaven, short of God himself, but implicitly, since God can't be described, since God is beyond explanation and description, it's almost like he gets a second chair as a consequence, that he is sort of downgraded in the poetic consciousness. The courtly love tradition is combined with this eternal transcendent Christian love tradition, and now we have a veneration of women tradition. A tradition that places love and the relationship that you have to your beloved as the highest thing that a human being can accomplish with no exceptions, no caveats, no Andreas Capellana stopping in and being like, P.S. don't do this, it's bad and it will make you a sinner. No way. Dante has no irony here, has no criticism here, has no question here. Like the poem freaking ends right where I end the excerpt. Here, vigor failed the towering fantasy. He passes out. But yet the will rolled onward, like a wheel in even motion, by the love impelled that moves the sun in heaven and all the stars. Again, we're walking that blasphemy line there. And technically, this is not blasphemy. Remember what we said? God is love. That's a thing. And just as Ibn Sina pointed out to us, like God is love and love is the force that drives all attraction. It makes the world go round, literally, for Ibn Sina. Dante repeats this idea here. By love impelled, the will rolls onward that moves the sun and heaven and all the stars. The world is literally moving because of the love of Beatrice to Dante, of Mary for humanity, and I guess of God too. You know, I guess. Maybe. This is going to be so important for the modern understanding of, of just how love works. They are going to very much get preoccupied with especially the women who are sort of venerated and, and super important. Like the women who you fall in love with and the women who intercede with you and the women who sacrifice for you. Like this is going to be a huge deal to the moderns and especially to the romantics who are going to carry this off and just run with it without any concern for exactly where that blasphemy line is lying. So keep this in mind. Keep in mind that this is where the this is sort of the pinnacle of the medieval thought, the union of all of the medieval love traditions that we've discussed so far, and also the start of something new. 
something that will absolutely be a definitive characteristic of all love conversation and love philosophy and love theology for the centuries to come. And again, we're not going to get that deep into it, and there will be pushback, and we will talk about that. Um, but keep this in mind. This is our starting point. Now we are talking about modernism and humanism. Hopefully we'll talk about that soon.